I'm Evan Smith. Welcome to the Texas Tribune's Trib Live podcast. This podcast series features discussions with some of the state's most influential elected officials and policymakers, all recorded in front of a live audience. The Tribune hosts more than 50 free Trib Live events each year around the state, plus our big annual Texas Tribune Festival in Austin. To learn more about our Trib Live events or the Texas Tribune, visit us at texastribune.org. The Texas Tribune's Trib Live event series is made possible through the generous support of AT&T, BP, Christus Health, and Raise Your Hand Texas. Please join me in welcoming Francisco Cigaroa and John Sharp. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Appreciate your being here. Good morning to both of you. Thank you for being here. The higher education conversation at the Capitol this session, gentlemen, has been dominated more than anything else by governance issues, and so it will come as no surprise that I want to start there. And it will come as no surprise, Chancellor Cigarella, that I want to start on that subject with you. Uh, you can may have, only imagine. You can only imagine. Get comfortable. Uh, you may have seen Lieutenant Governor's statement yesterday supporting the letter written by senators uh, who believe that the, the uh, calls by the regions to further investigate the UT Law Foundation situation is unwarranted, that the Attorney General's office can take care of this. Uh, he believes, said so explicitly, that this is really an effort to get UT Austin and specifically President Powers. Do you agree? Well, I think that, uh, you know, the answer <coughs> to that is no in, in regards to, you know, individualizing that to one person. And in fact, uh, Vice Chairman Foster you know, absolutely stated that. Now, you know, this was a split vote uh, requiring Vice Chairman Foster to actually, you know, vote affirmatively. And, uh, well, he wasn't and, required to vote affirmatively. He chose to vote affirmatively. Well, he chose to vote affirmatively. And it's not a surprise to me that because of that, uh, there has been a lot of press coverage for this. And, uh, but I'd also like to state that that one vote doesn't define uh, the Board of Regents, and it doesn't define the University of Texas system. So you don't think that we're, we're to read anything more into that? You know, Governor Dewhurst is not alone. Dallas Morning News editorial page a couple days ago, Chairman Pitts. Regent Hicks on his Facebook page. Regent Hicks and Chairman Pitts both use the phrase witch hunt. Is that wrong? They both believe it's a witch hunt. Well, you know, again, as Chancellor of the University of Texas system, uh, I do not believe it's a witch hunt. Uh, you know, my perspective is, uh, and let me be clear of this, everybody's been asking how I evaluate presidents. And we had a conversation about this. We have uh, had many. Yes. Yeah. And when you take a look at Bill Powers' work plan, and you take a look at the accomplishments of this president, yeah. his work plan has four goals. You know, one is graduation rates. Number two is cost containment. Number three is research expenditures. Number four is philanthropy. So let's go down those four lists. So on graduation rates, President Powers was the first president among our nine academic campuses to state that we will increase the four-year graduation rate from 53% to 75%. And he put his neck out on the line, and he's going to do it. Right. Second. When you talk about research expenditures, despite uh, federal you know, government really pulling back, UT Austin has continued to increase its research expenditures in the most peer-reviewed 
and rigorous yeah. grants. And th these are NIH grants, NSF grants, DOE grants. When you talk about cost containment, uh, he basically also followed a goal of the framework uh, which stated, let's take a look at our organizational structure. Let's see where we can contain costs so that we can reallocate our dollars to the mission of this university and put those dollars to the students. Well, through this organizational review, he's identified about $490 million that he can save over the next 10 years. And then let's talk about philanthropy. Bill Powers in UT Austin is bringing in about a million dollars a day. And then over the past three months, we had Susan and Michael Dell give a $50 million gift for the Dell School of Medicine. And then also, just last week, Bob Robert Rowling right. gave a $25 million gift. So this sounds like a defense of President Powers from the Chancellor. So, you know, I, you know, in regards to the work plan and in regards to the yeah. framework for, for, for advancing excellence, I would have to say that President Powers is doing his job. Do, are you, uh, I, I will come to Mr. Charpentier in a second, are you obligated to participate in some, no? You want, you want to stay as far away as possible. Are you, are you obligated, should the new regents be confirmed, Mr. Foster reconfirmed, and come August they have the votes that they decide, despite what you said, that they want to remove President Powers, what is the role that you as Chancellor have to play? Some regents I've talked to seem not to know whether they have the authority as a, a body of nine to do this without your involvement. Some people think that you have to act as the person to execute upon their wishes. Well, the chairman of the Board of Regents has uh, you know, unequivocally stated that uh, you know, the chancellor needs to recommend you know, a removal of a president. So without your recommendation, they can't, they, even if they have nine votes to remove President Powers, without your recommendation, they can't do it. Well, you know, governing boards can always change their policies. But as it stands today, right. the chancellor of the University of Texas system the, the, pre, the Board of Regents hires presidents, yeah. and the Chancellor of the University of Texas System recommends uh, continue, continuation or dismissal of a president or dismissal. So let me ask you a quick question on this. So I'm, I'm, what comes to mind is the Saturday Night Massacre from Watergate. Are you going to be Elliot Richardson or Robert Bork in this situation? <laughs> <laughs> if, if, if you know that the Regents want you to recommend the dismissal of President Powers, are you prepared to do that, or would you resign rather than do that if you believe the President Power should remain in his job? I will always give my very best recommendation, and, and that is a Sigaroa core value. And if your recommendation is that he should stay, then that will be your recommendation despite their wishes. I always speak my mind. Right. Mr. Sharp, the legislature has played a role in this conversation, as you know. You've been a legislator. You've seen life from that side of the, of the line. They have involved themselves in this conversation up the street about governance. Some people believe that the micromanagement this session of higher ed has not come from the regents, but is coming from the legislature. Do you believe that? No. You don't? You want me to say something bad about the legislature? No. no. <laughs> I am not stupid enough to invite you to I say believe, something with Mrs. Afferidi right now. I believe you are right in that. I'm a trauma surgeon. I yeah. can take care of you guys. You, you, you're, your services may be required before is this, this is, is over. Is this why you put me in the center? It could very well be. Now, what, I, I, what do you think I, I about that? I believe you're right in that some people suggest that. Um, you don't share that view? Uh, if I did, I wouldn't talk about it. But <laughs> let, me, let me give you my, my take on it. Uh, every chancellor has some of that. Yeah. I mean, you have it at Tech, you have it at, at different places. Right. But, but it is usually because uh, you have folks that come from the university that they love, and by God, they just want to do everything that they can. Yeah. And 
many times don't think about, and I'm probably, you know, I need to take a course on micromanaging too because I'm, I'm a bit guilty of that myself. Uh, I've heard. You've heard. Yeah. But, but, but um, I think once they see it, like for instance, when you ask the question, said, hey, if you were, uh, you know, on the board of Exxon, would you be calling your head of production and saying, I don't want you to drill the well here, I want you to drill it over there? It kind of, the light shows open. And so, uh, Renuga Tour, uh, probably has less of this University than, of Houston than Chancellor any, than slash anybody. President. And one of the reasons she does is she had uh, a guy come in that's really an expert in corporate governance and things like that to, to talk to her board. We're doing the same thing. We're bringing a guy named Dick Chait from Harvard over next month. Yeah. Uh, not just for our new regents, but for everybody. And this is about the bright line, Chancellor, between governance and operations. Supposed yeah, to stay on I, one side of the line. Yeah, and, right. you, and you will always have employees within a big system like the two of us have right. that will go, hey, if I can get to a region and not have to go through a president or, or a chancellor, right. hey, I'm, I'm a hero back back in AgriLife or, or wherever. So there will always be, be people right. that test that. And so we first thing I did is, is I said, look, I don't want to prevent anybody from talking to a region, but if you do, I expect the text message within five minutes of that conversation. I want right. to know everything right. that you said. And everybody was, was good with that, and that kind of gives you an idea of what, what's going on. But I, th I think that, that a lot of it, at least in our instance, and I, in talking to Hans and Brian and, and, and other chancellors, others, yeah. is well-intentioned. Yeah. And once you kind of go, this is sort of not, you know, you're not the chancellor. They, you they, need they to get it. Me. They get it. Yeah. So this conversation we've been having about micromanagement and governance and what have you, Ch Chancellor, you know, so, so much of the conversation about higher ed on this subject seems to be directed at UT Austin, but the reality is there are other university systems that would be subject to whatever the ultimate decision is. You all would be subject to live by whatever the legislature resolves on this, whether they're correct to be involved or not, as UT Austin would. So do you think we have a problem that we have to fix, or is this much ado about nothing, generally speaking? I don't, I, I can't speak for what's Well, I'm not on. looking at UT Austin. I'm, I'm asking if you think, generally speaking, in your world or in the world of higher ed, do we have an issue that needs resolving? In, in my world, it's a problem we, we can fix. One of the things yeah. uh, really good, I think, that happened in our instance is, is there's a, a really world-renowned expert, graduate of the University of yeah. Texas and Harvard, that just is coming on our board, who is sort of one of the leading experts in corporate governance yeah. in the country, yeah. uh, Charles Schwartz, and uh, president of the Bar Association, really right. an expert, and I think um, as he assimilates into the board, you know, people will, you know. Having of, that guy in the room you know, is Having that help. guy in the room, I think, is, right. is real good. But I don't think, in, in our instance, it's not anything ill-intentioned, it's, gosh, I want to, I want to help, I want to be a part of this, and sometimes it gets out of hand if you let it get out of hand, you know, if you don't just talk about it. Uh, Chancellor Cigarella, Mr. Sharp, talked about uh, cost containment as something that President Powers has been engaged in, and in fact, all across higher ed, at least going back to the last legislative session under the banner of reform, there's been discussion of financial efficiency. This has been a big focus of your time in, uh, in the job. The, these 18 months. You've spent a lot of time thinking about the budget. It harkens back to your days as Comptroller. We used to call you John the Knife. You know, you come in and cut the budget. That was kind of what you did. Could you talk about why you've made this your 
priority, if you agree that it has been, to make the university system more efficient, and how it relates back to excellence. Because a lot of people say he's cutting the budget, but is he talking about excellence enough alongside efficiency? It comes from the faculty. I, I, you know, when I got to A&M, uh, I, I easily was the most ignorant person on the campus about pretty much everything. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time with faculty, I spent a lot of time with researchers and folks like that, because at that time, there was lots of chit-chat about research and yeah. how research is not good and stuff like that. Well, you don't have to spend more than 10 minutes at a flagship like we have to figure out that research changes the world. And, and a lot of people don't know about it. And so- Well, in fact, some people disagree. Yeah, well, they'd be wrong. Um, <laughs> because, uh, I mean, there are things in this room that are here because of research that happened at a flagship university like ours yeah. in, in Francisco. And so what those folks were saying is, is that, you know, I mean, they were talking about tough times and the legislature had to cut back because of the revenue estimate they got from the yeah. controller. And, uh, you know, it wasn't there. Um, and so basically we, we looked at outsourcing, we looked at administrative costs, and we're looking at IT changes, which they, by the way, are, are way ahead of the pack on that, and we're actually you know, talking to their folks and getting ideas about how to do it. And with the specific instructions from me and the Board of Regents that every penny of, every, of the, the outsourcing $260 million, the $45 million we got on the signing board, that all of that is to go into the classroom and the laboratory, yep. and not to any place else. And so, uh, it was. It wasn't out there any place else. We had to get it, and we had to put it. And we, we have to make our IT systems better for the researchers, and we have to make our IT systems better for what happens in the classroom. And the problem with all of that is if you haven't seen uh, something better you don't know, and so there's lots of resistance. I mean, yeah. it's a tough deal to stand in front of a thousand employees and get screamed at and, you know, you're an idiot and all this kind of stuff. But I think that once they see the results, here it goes, it makes the second steps and the third steps a whole, whole lot easier. So it's, a, it's an evolving process, but we're, uh, we're our, our board is very, very good behind T it. Tie a chancellor to excellence, and I'm gonna ask you the same question on the UT side. How financial efficiency ultimately makes excellence the case. I mean, we want, all of us, want the universities of the state to be excellent, to be the very best. We want to be the very best at everything. So okay. how does that make A&M more excellent? Because we, Academically. Because we set up a $100 million fund yep. called the Chancellor's Research Initiative, where the flagship in Prairie View, the only yep. two that, that share an AUF money, um, are able to go, use that money uh, to go find uh, big-time researchers any place in the world that they right. can, uh, pay them bonuses, build their labs to their specifications right. that maybe California can't afford right now or Michigan right. can't afford right, right now, bring those folks here, and then we use the savings. Uh, President Lofton is using the savings from the outsourcing money to pay, to pay those the guys. salaries. Right, so but for the budget savings, that effort would not be possible under these circumstances. Right, not possible. Yeah, uh, talk to me about the UT version of this. So. How have you approached the task of financial efficiency under the system banner, and what has that done to make the institutions excellent? Well, in 2009, when I became chancellor, we uh, really did an external review uh, of the University of Texas system. 
And you know, this was at a time when the market values of our endowments were plummeting 20, 30, 40%. Uh, our state legislature was also experiencing uh, decreases in the total you know, revenue expected for the state. And, and, and Evan, it became very clear that we needed you know, to move forward in identifying cost containments. Since 2007, uh, working with Scott Kelly, um, we have identified $2 billion worth of real savings or value added, and we expect another $2 billion in similar cost containment or value added by the year 2016. Are you doing what the Chancellor is doing, which is redirecting that money back into programs? So, so, yeah. so let me tell you, yeah. as a result of this, despite a very difficult legislative sessions in the past, and as a result of this, we've accomplished some amazing things. Uh, so let's take a look at what we've accomplished. Uh, you take a look at South Texas, and we have come forward in presenting uh, to the legislature a total transformation of how we will be educating students in South Texas by creating a new university of the 21st century that will finally provide puff eligibility to a region that has not had any puff dollars for over 100 years. And we feel that that can position that region to eventually have an emerging research university. And that's only possible because of the savings. It, all of this you know, falls into this. Right. The second thing is uh, the UT system is probably the only system of higher education in America that is moving forward and building two schools of medicine. And we're putting skin in that game, not only because we've been able to contain costs, but because we've been able to be strategic in how we spend our money. If we build this, you know, as we're moving forward and building the School of Medicine at UT Austin, uh, this will allow UT Austin to become, uh, and I'll be respectful about this, but America's finest public university. This is the first AAU university that will build a School of Medicine within the past 65 years. Uh, UT Austin this year has been recognized number 25 in the Texas Higher Education World Rankings. Mm -hmm. Last year it was 29, and that is based on metrics of excellence. You take a look at uh, what we're doing again, and John's been a perfect example of really identifying good public partner, private partnerships. Right. We're building for the first time a freestanding comprehensive children's hospital in San Antonio. And this will also bring in the number one children's hospital in America to partner with us. That's the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. So again, at a time when funding for higher education is down across the board, you're able to identify savings within the footprint of the system that make these things possible. Now the other point I'd like to, to recognize, because John Sharp and I, we not only have to take care of our flagship. You know, in my case, we have 14 other universities. Right, well, it's 30, we said 34 right. institutions in total that are under your, or agencies and, and, that are and under And if you take a look at whether it's our emerging research universities or our comprehensive universities such as Permian Basin, um, Tyler, Brownsville, Pan Am, all of them are ascending yeah. in metrics of excellence despite the environment that we're in. But because we do have legislators here today, yeah. I'd also like to encourage is that you know, our universities, John Sharp and I, have done our part. And we have trimmed, we have contained costs, we have kept morale up to the best of our abilities. Uh, but we, you know, we can't do this alone. Uh, we're very, very grateful that the legislature has identified additional funds for higher ed. You know, I hope we can continue that you, towards you, the end you, of the you, session. You, you need them. And, and we and need let, them. Yeah, and let me speak to that, Chancellor Sharp specifically. So last week, the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities, a think tank in Washington, released a report on per-student spending in higher ed in the 50 states over the last five years. Texas is actually down 22% in per-student spending on higher ed, the state's contribution. 
over the last five years. Middle of the pack among the states. Other states are worse, some are, some are better, but that's still a significant amount. Tuitions have not risen in that period on average to meet the decline in the state's contribution. Are you getting enough money from the state, do you think, to do the things you need to do? Because really, over time, we've seen the share that the state contributed go from about 50% of every higher ed dollar spent per student coming from the state in 84. I think last year it was 22% at A&M and 13% at UT. We're getting pretty far down in terms of what the state's contributing. So are you getting enough from the, from the state? Not, well, certainly not to do everything we want to do. Right. I mean, I mean what, the way we view it is, like, look, we understand the legislature had a problem. It wasn't of their own making. They had to make choices. Right. They made the choices. Uh, our flagship was down 13%, probably equivalent uh, percentage for, for University of Texas at Austin. And so we had to, we ha we had to make those decisions. Now, we go to the legislature and we say, if you give us some more money, let me show you what we, we can, can do. do. Right. Uh, our kind of goal over the last year or so has been we want Judy and we want the other senators and, and House members uh, to know what we were doing, that we took their message to heart, that we're doing yep. things uh, that a that other folks would do, that a household would do in order to make sure there was food on the table and do the core values. I mean, the reason, the reason our universities are there are for two reasons, what happens in the classroom and what happens in the laboratory. And it is not there to serve food. It is not there to uh, maintain buildings. It's not there to mow grass. Those are, it's not even there because they're chancellors. It, all of this stuff is there to support what happens over there. And so if we can get money from that uh, and pour into the core functions of what the reason we're here, we'll do it. Could we do more if we had more funding? You betcha we could. We are highly thankful for what is coming, moving so far through this legislative session and in changing. I, I would say one thing, and I think we both share this, is there is a perception out there that if you're a puff eligible school, my God, you've got more money than God, yeah. and you're in good shape. Right. That is not the case. I mean, we are at the limits. In, 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 I mean, he's got 12 mouths to feed and 15, 15 mouths to feed that are puff eligible. I've got about six in mine. And of course, I only get a third of, you know. <laughs> So, I thought yours ago. Not, not, not that you're complaining. <laughs> not that I'm complaining <laughs> about the third. Uh, but the, yeah, there's a whole bunch, right. a whole lot of more more things we could do if if, if you had more if, money. If we had that. But the mistakes that were made two years ago with all of the hoopla about research. Right. Is the first mistake was that it it left the impression that all research is bad, and that when that resonated through the other 49 states, our peers who vote in U.S. News right. and World Report and those things go, oh my God, Texas is against research. Right. I don't believe that's the case with those folks. Whose, whose mistake was it? Well, uh, whoever was in charge of marketing for that deal. No, no, but whose mistake was it to denigrate research? I don't, I don't, I don't know where all it came from. I just read the papers. But, <laughs> but, 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 but I will tell you this, it, it, was, it, was, the, it was bad marketing whether it came from public policy, wherever, bad marketing, because um, it, 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 just, it took away from uh, that yeah. part of it. But, Sell, selling proposition for yeah, higher ed. But I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, is that's why, that's why we're here. That research then goes back into the classroom, plus goes out into the public and right. things like that. And so right. uh, there were some things in there that I thought were some good ideas. I can't, you know, it's been a while since I've looked at it, but I remember thinking that. But the way it was 
sold, or the way it first got to the press not was so research is bad, and that is not the case. Every Wednesday I meet with, you know, ongoing education here, meet with some out-of-the-box research professor, and every Wednesday I just get blown away yeah. by what I see and what's on the horizon if these folks get funded properly in order to do what yeah. they do. And I'm, I'm talking about from curing cancer to right. everything else. Let me come, Chancellor, at, at this question of state funding and whether you have enough money from another side. So you have been either unwilling or unable to raise tuitions uh, at your institution. So tuition dollars are not coming in in, in greater supply. State dollars are coming down. I mean, it really does hit a point where you, you look at your budget and you go, I got to do as much as I have to do in a fast-growing state where the population is not only growing but the composition is changing. New challenges all the time. You, you kind of have to go, well, this is how much I've got. I've got to figure out how to cut up the pie differently. Well, you're absolutely correct. Um, in, in my interactions with the legislature this year, there has been sensitivity for enhanced funding for higher ed. Yeah. Our legislative body has recognized that our systems of higher education have contained their costs, have trimmed uh, you know, have enhanced efficiency, and in fact, bent the cost curve, you know, for the, for the cost per degree. Yeah. Uh, in fact, both Texas A&M and UT system, you know, have really either plateaued or lowered or cut tuition. But this is a shared responsibility. It's a shared responsibility, you know, from our great state of Texas in regards to supporting literally the economic engine, you know, for this state. And those are our universities. But can you and, make the public ed. Yeah. Second, we have to contain cost. Third, there has to be focus and discipline on behalf of students and their families. But there is a tipping point. Yeah. And, and I believe that we've done as much and we continue to do as much innovation as we can, yeah. but there's a tipping point that we can't do this completely by ourselves. Can you, either of you make the case, because these do the dollars that the legislature could spend on higher ed, it's not, a zero, it's not higher ed versus not higher ed. In some cases, it's a finite fixed amount of dollars. It's higher ed versus public ed, or it's higher ed versus water, or it's higher ed versus transportation. Can you make the case that higher ed should be elevated to the top of that list, Mr. Sharp? Yeah, I, mean, I can make a case. How much time you got? It, it, it yeah. should be, sure, because everything that happens in education below it, it depends on how well you, you do your higher education. I mean, yeah. take uh, teachers, for example. Right. Between the two of us, we probably produced 50% of the teachers or more yeah. in, the, in the state of Texas. That is not the case with some universities that achieve the status that these two right. universities achieve. They, they, teaching is below us, so we don't do it at, in the Ivy Leagues. And so the argument is without you all doing that, public ed suffers. In some ways, sure. they need you to be Absolutely. excellent in order for them Absolutely. to be excellent. Absolutely. Right. Um, I, I mentioned that micromanagement or governance issues have dominated the higher ed conversation this session. You've got 60 days left. Each of you tell me an issue that if in, in a perfect world, the legislature would focus more on in the realm of higher ed in the remaining time we have this session. Mr. Sharp first. Give me one um, issue. We're, we like what we see so far in the legislative session. We, th we think things are, are going well. There's a, a, a couple of kinks, but, uh, but I think you know, the restoration of maybe 8% of the 12, 13% that was, that was removed was a, was a big step. Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons that's happening is because of Judy, because of Tommy Williams, because of yeah. Kel Seliger and folks that are working in the trenches to, to make that happen. They have limits to their right. revenue estimate this time as well, but. Tell me something that hasn't happened yet, though, that you want, that you would say over the next 60 days, if you could control it, what would they focus their attention on? Um, hmm. I don't know 
I don't know if it's, I mean, I mean every, everything that we want to happen is it's, it's in happening. a committee moving through the process. Okay. Same? Okay, you, I've got an issue? Uh, several goals that, that uh, I'm incurring our legislature to have sensitivities to. First is enhanced funding for higher ed right. in the areas of formative funding in regards to graduate medical education, the competitive knowledge fund, uh, TRIP funding, yeah. you know, all very important. And we're seeing forward movement in that. The second issue, which is certainly being discussed on the Senate side, uh, discussions on the House side have been a little bit more quiet, but, but I do believe they're you know, being very pensive in a constructive way about it is the issue of tuition revenue bonds. Yep. Uh, it has been over seven years uh, that you know, our campuses have not received support for capital funding from the state at a time when Texas is the most rapidly yep. you know, growing population in the entire United States of America. Right. and at a time when interest rates are extremely low. Uh, the third aspect, which I think is moving along, yeah. um, but, but is important for the state of Texas in regards to recruiting uh, the, intellectual cap, you know, the, the intellectual talent in the area of cancer biology and research is CPRIT. Yeah. You know, we are supportive of CPRIT, but yes, they've got to get their governance in order as well. Uh, so you know, when you take a look at these three issues on top of a you know, policies for UT civil, which is really the transformation of South Texas. Right. I've been very encouraged that the legislature has had a receptive ear, and I remain optimistic. You, you, you feel pretty good about worse, but you both there's, do. There's one thing I, I think yeah. I, I'd like to see him look at, and that has to do with uh, tuition revenue bonds. Because in the Puff eligible institutions, there's a match. He has to do a 50% yeah. match for those. I have to do 33% match right. for those before all the other institutions TRBs can be funded in our right. in our. So you're in agreement about the TRBs? Uh, uh, yes, I'm in agreement with the TRBs, but I am not convinced. Looking, I've been seeing all of your numbers from Scott, but I've looked at our numbers, and I'm not sure you can get the match. I, I, I mean, I'm not sure we can come up with the match in the permanent university fund system as it's now structured, right. uh, with available funds uh, to match the 114 million that we need to match in order to do it, and the 200 and 300 million that they need to do it. Right. Puff is, Puff is not this big panacea that everybody is clamoring into. In this instance, we're, we're a little concerned about that. Let me let you say that, and then I got one more question. Yeah, well, I have a story about that, uh, which is in 2007, um, I remember I was there 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning, um, awaiting the deliberations of Senate Finance and TRBs, of which you were leading the charge centers, f &E. One of the things that I liked about 2007 is that when TRBs were allocated, uh, to the campuses across the state of Texas, uh, the legislature, in their wisdom, uh, asked each campus to put some skin in the game. Yeah. Uh, whether it be 20%, 30%, you know, it varied depending upon, you know, the, 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 the capacity of the campus. And the reason why I thought that was really good policy, which I think should be continued during this session, is that it really engaged the community philanthropically to contribute to this. And so I was having a hard time completing my capital campaign uh, in that 2007 region. But when the legislature stated, we will fund 70% of the South Texas Research Facility, but we're asking you to come up with the rest of the 30%, yeah. I was able to go to individuals Made it like easier. Bill Grehe and Joe Long and others. Yeah. And very quickly, it catalyzed the capital campaign. And so it almost served equivalent to TRIP funding. So it has an effect beyond simply the allocation, it inspires people. We to think it's good policy, right. and, and that's why I agree with John 
that just to just to just to you know focus your attention that only UT and Texas A&M have to come up with institutional matching funds. I think if we can, if, if everybody can have some skin in the game, right. the legislature can allocate more funds to more campuses. Now, I want to ask one last question before we bring the audience in about the UT A&M relationship, which you know it's not exactly a, well, maybe it is kind of a kumbaya moment. You know, you all seem to be kind of on the same page. A lot, a lot of stuff. Everybody's happy. Everybody's getting along. My mother loves John Sharp. Is that right? <laughs> I love his mother. And you love his mother. Well, okay, it and is therefore, a kumbaya. And therefore, we have officially John achieved kumbaya fans. moment. That's it. Um, and I would even say that in the realm of A&M now being in the SEC, the great season that you all had, you aren't even playing on the same football field any longer, that that aspect of the rivalry has been tamped down. Or so I thought, until the other day, <laughs> when I read a quote by the athletic director of uh, the University, uh, DeLos Dodds, uh, the question was posed to him the other day about whether and when A&M and UT might get on the field again together. And Mr. Dodds said, uh, the rivalry will, will renew, but on the University of Texas's terms, he said. And this was his exact quote. They left, referring to A&M. They're the ones that decided not to play us. We get to decide when we play again. I think that's fair. I think if you did a survey of our fans about playing A&M, they don't want to. <laughs> I think there got to be a period where things get different. I think there's too many hard feelings. I'm going to take a stab, Mr. Sharp, that you might have a point of view about this. What do well, you think about that? I did hear about that. Yeah. Uh, few, Within five minutes? A few thousand emails. <laughs> might not have taken even five minutes. Uh, I know DeLostodds. DeLostodds is a friend of mine, yada, yada. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> is, this, is this when you say, I'm no DeLostodds? Is that what it is? Yeah, yeah. and, and uh, it wasn't exactly, uh, um, well, let me just say this. We, we, we have a lot to thank DeLost for. Some of our greatest decisions were made uh, with his help, like moving to the SEC. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I, will say I thought you were going to bring up not signing Johnny Manziel, actually. <laughs> but, and that. And that. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, I, when I first got to be chancellor, you know, some of my regents asked me to go see Cisco and to go see uh, Francisco and to go see uh, Bill. And I went to him and said, hey, you know, we want to play the game or something like that. But I have to agree with the loss a bit on this, um, especially after that quote. Um, it's just not there anymore. I mean, our folks. You've moved on. They've moved on. I mean, Alabama works. LSU <laughs> works. <laughs> and uh, we're very comfortable with our decision. And so uh, it just every day wanes more and more. I, I, th I think the only time that that's going to happen is, you know, when UT is able to play in a major bowl game. <laughs> How quickly, John, we're good. There, there's an exit out the back. We can protect you as you go. That's what you need. You want to have anything to say about this, or should we open it up for questions? I think we can open it up. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you. Let's give our chancellors a hand for their kindness and being here today. Thank you both. Um, Questions from the audience. Young man in the front here has his hand right up, and we'll go there first. Yes, sir. We have a microphone walked over to you. Hi, my name is Luciano Villasenor. I'm a UT student. First off, I want to remind everybody in the room that the budget crisis that these chancellors speak of is totally man-made. 
This state is awash in money. Businesses are making money in the state ha hand over hand. A 1% tax, a 1% business tax would fund higher education in this state and the states that surround us. So I, I just want everybody in the room to understand that, like this budget crisis is totally mad. What, what is your question? My question uh, for Chancellor Sharp, President Powers is initiating a privatization plan very similar to what you, to what you initiated at A&M. He's gonna squeeze out $490 million from students and staff with higher uh, fees for students and laying off workers. Um, I'm curious, uh, the 100 workers that were laid off from food services at A&M, I'm curious if they were able to find jobs again. You, you, had, you mentioned the 1,000 workers that were screaming at you. Stipulating, I don't know if his numbers on the University of Texas are correct, but what was the react? What, what, what happened to the people who were uh, victims in some respects of the mm, private? Every single person was offered a job with a four percent pay raise. Only six hundred of those workers were. Re I saw the figures. I'm there. You want to come by the office? Every single person was offered the job with a four percent pay raise. Those that were near retirement were able to stay on retirement at A&M, and that issue has long been settled by folks that were detractors yeah. and happy to have the money, and your figures are wrong. Mr. Staley, and then we'll go to the back. You want to go to the back now? No, I know no, Mr. Staley, I, I respect my elders, you go first. <laughs> I uh, wanted to offer a, a, an anecdote rather than a, uh, any kind of question, uh, because I see the both of these distinguished gentlemen there. And they represent two distinguished institutions in this state that need to be protected and taken care of because they represent a really international group of institutions, and they're at the top. Now, here's what happened not too long ago. Uh, you all know Scarlett O'Hara and her dress. It's at the Ransom Center, and many of them are. And the, the British and Albert L Museum in London wanted to have this dress for an, an international show and it happened to have feathers in it. Now, there was no way that we could get this past the customs or whatever it was needed to do. They just, they don't, we don't accept feathers. You can't move feathers around. Well, we went... Sounds like a bureaucracy. <laughs> it's a government. <laughs> the next thing that we did, that we went to a professor at Texas A&M University who happens to be a world's authority on this field. And she said, oh no, that's a, those are feathers from a such and such a bird that has nothing to do, it's not banned at all. They can come. And we got the feathers to the Victoria and Albert and two institutions. Right. Working together. Worked together and got it. Right. It's a minor little anecdote, but I think it raises the opportunity to look at some of the things that institutions can do. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> uh, go in the, uh, there's a woman in the back very patiently, or I think her has her hand up and then we'll Is come over here. I don't think it was. That's okay. It's a good moment. Thank you, Evan. Um, Ma'am. Glad to have both of you together on one stage. I have a question about uh, competition for the best professors and the best uh, students. Um, you know, many universities, particularly in Asia, have been taking careful notes on how we have our university system set up over the last 30 years, and they're now building their own. Are you starting to run into problems where you've identified a really awesome professor or student that you want to recruit that they chose to go to Asia either because of resources that the, that institution over there was able to provide or any other reason? What kind of barriers do you have to recruitment of students and faculty under current circumstances? Chancellor. Well, I'll, I'll give a crack at that. Um, this has been always a competitive environment uh, to recruit or to retain you know, the most gifted faculty you know, from the world to come to the University of Texas. 
In fact, every time you hire someone, you almost have to continually hire them every day because, because retention, the best and the brightest are always you know, trying to be competitively attracted to other universities. This was a major argument as to why we asked the Board of Regents uh, about eight years ago uh, to commit STARS funding to help our campuses recruit the best and the brightest uh, to come to the University of Texas. It has probably been the single most effective tool that the Board of Regents has been able to provide uh, to recruit you know, these incredible people. In fact, STARS funding was responsible for recruiting uh, Dr. Bortler from Southwestern Medical Center who received the Nobel Laureate Prize just last year. So money matters. Money matters. Same. same. You said that the savings that you realized contributing back in allowed you to retain, keep and, and, and uh, hire new right. faculty. And you have faculty uh, that haven't had a raise uh, except for merit raises in a, in a very long time. Right. I'm not sure it's so much about the money, but it's they need some love. They need some appreciation that yep. this is doing, and hopefully that'll be able to happen. Yeah. Uh, you know, after this after this legislative session. Yeah. Uh, but um, it, it also has to do with researchers. I mean, we're constantly, as they are, right. uh, bombarded with people trying to steal our very best people, and we've got to make sure right. that they play happens. defense. Yeah. Yes. And and what helps the process is it, part of the deal too is they want to be part of something big and so yep. engineers that perhaps were thinking about maybe going somewhere else are now going hey I want to be part of the 25 by 25 initiative that Dean Banks is doing right. uh, they want to be part of the GlaxoSmithKline deal they want to be part right. of you know all kinds of things and so if they, they see I think A&M is on the rise we're the largest research university in Texas, and I say that respectfully. Yeah. And, and they, they want to be a part of that, and they want to be a part of getting it to the magic billion-dollar figure, and, and so that's part of it, too. But, but, but showing some respect for what we don't need is a lot. I mean, bad publicity doesn't get contained into Texas. It gets in the Chronicle of Higher Education. Well, well let me, and let me ask about that specifically. I wondered whether some of this political stuff that we've been talking about, the first half of the conversation, the fight between, it is said, the governor and his allies on higher ed under the banner of reform and some of the university systems, or some of this question of regions, if that becomes its own obstacle to retaining faculty and to recruiting faculty. For instance, I've heard it said, Chancellor, that the open provost job, or the soon-to-be open provost job at UT Austin, is that much harder to fill under these circumstances because, as was said to me by somebody, who would want that job now? And so I wonder if some of this external stuff is impacting recruitment of students, but particularly recruitment and retention of faculty. Well, the fact is that it does. And you know, whenever individuals or universities sense some instability, uh, it's an opportunity for them to attract your best and the brightest. You're almost telling them this is a good time to poach. And, and so John Sharp and I you know, have to work overdrive to basically establish an environment uh, that really allows the very best and the brightest to come over here. Uh, we've been successful thus far. In fact, uh, if you just take a look at MD Anderson, the number one cancer hospital in the world, uh, we were able you know, to recruit a magnificent team yep. you know, from Harvard uh, to come to Houston to eliminate and make cancer history. Uh, but, but this is a very competitive environment. Every AAU university wants our best and our brightest. Yep. And 
one of the most difficult times for, you know, for John and for myself is to find out that one of your stars, one of your Nobel laureates, one of your Pulitzer Prize winners is being you know, recruited out for and we need to counteroffer. And that takes often resources, right. space, and an environment uh, where they feel the love. And, and on to the latter point, in, in some ways, money can't solve the problem of people thinking, whatever you pay me, I'm still in an unstable environment, and I'm not sure that this is the place I want to be. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The political stuff actually does matter. Yeah. I mean, we... But I would say, yeah. Texas, from an economic vantage point, <coughs> is still the greatest state in the United States. And, and, you know, that is a huge advantage for us. But we've got to work it every day. Yeah. And we do. And, and they probably do the same thing we do. I mean, when a couple of years ago or 18 months ago, whenever it was, and the, the, there was broad misconception, I think even, even for what the real intent of the folks were talking about, yeah. you know. On back, reform. Yeah, before. Yeah. Uh, so we spent a lot of time, I and mean, we sent professors, and we sent folks to talk about, hey, that's, we're still, we're very serious about research. We want research right. to grow and stuff like that. And that's one of the reasons we, created that initiative and yep. other things to make sure folks know it. And so, you know, when that kind of stuff happens or the stuff that's going on now happens, you, you've got to spend some overtime. Pl play a but I'll tell you this, yeah. when people come in yeah. from out of state and they see his stuff and they see our stuff, they go, oh my God, yeah. if they've never been here, it never fails. I don't care if it's a Nobel or whoever it is, they come yeah. in and they just go, oh my God, I had no idea. Best, recruit best recruitment <laughs> tool of the universities yeah. themselves. Uh, Mr. George, and then gentlemen right here. Sir. One of the shocking things I see is that I have a law firm and I hire a lot of UT students who work part-time for me during the school year and uh, help pay their bills. And when I went to school, tuition was $50 a semester. And you could work part-time and pay the bills and go to, go to school that way. I was trying to figure out whether or not either of your institutions track the percentage of the family's income that your tuition represents. When I went to school, it was a very small, I mean, my family probably had $10,000 a year, but $50 a semester tuition we could handle. But I have a lot of kids working for me that seems to not be able to get it done with yep. that sort of thing. And I wondered what... Yep way you track what is the percentage of the family's average income of all of our students that our tuition extracts do, each do, year? Do you know? Do you have a sense of the, the answer is it is tracked. Uh, you also have to take it into context of you know what what the actual cost is after scholarships and grants. Right. And if you take a look at UT system as a whole, uh, forty seven percent you know of all students uh, you know there's a 47% discount on average on all students. A 47% discount and, on average. And if you take a look at those who are need-based, uh, their, their tuition is uh, diminished by about 75%. Right. So you've got to take a look at it in the, in the whole context. So there's the rack rate, but the reality is very few people pay the rack rate in, in this case. Correct. But, you know, when I was going to medical school, it cost uh, $300 a semester. Uh, at the same time, uh, total state dollars per student FTE was significantly higher. Is that uh, comparable in your case? Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, our, our tuition is lower than Texas Tech, lower than University of Houston. I mean, our regents are, they worry a bunch about middle class kids, and yeah. I think that's good. 
if you make sixty thousand dollars, if your family makes sixty thousand dollars or less, uh, it winds up getting paid for. I mean, what can't be made up with Pell or what can't be made up with grants and things like that, the, the flagship anyway, uh, will figure out a way to make that work. They do worry a little bit about the kind of 60s through one and a quarter, yeah. you know, those folks who are, are, don't qualify for any of those things, uh, but are not rich enough to not worry and stay up at night and figure out how to pay for, for right. kids' ed ed education. Is the state providing you enough money in the form of financial aid? One of the byproducts of the 11 session was that a number of those consequential financial aid programs got cut. And I don't yet know whether there's going to be an adequate restoration of those funds, but there was a lot of anxiety about just as the population is changing, you have a lot of people who will be first in their family to go to college. For them, those dollars really do make the difference between being able to go and not being able to go. Do you have enough financial aid dollars from the state? No, and, and you never will, particularly in a time like this, you know, coming out of a recession or depression or whatever yeah. you call this. No, you'll, you'll, you'll never have enough. I mean, if I had my druthers, the South Texas Initiative would be funded as it was originally intended by Senator Safarini and others. Uh, and so, particularly with regard to that, you, you, you're never going to have enough to do. Okay. Gentleman over here, very patient, sir. Right there, Natalia. Yes, you use your outside voice if you want, however you want to do it. Uh, I'd like to follow up on the competitiveness question. Uh, over 400 universities, including all of the Ivy League uh, and all of the Big Ten, uh, offer benefit plans that include unmarried, married, unmarried household members. Your systems currently aren't able to do that, but Senator Watson and Representative Nagetown are trying to change that. Is that something that you can see a benefit and be supportive of? Well, the legislature is working on that, and I'm certainly looking forward to see how the legislature delivers. Are you on advocating this. for them to change the policy in the direction of the questioner, or are you taking no position on the subject? It is well, not. It is not legal for us to advocate. We learned that. <laughs> Touche, <laughs> Chancellor. So you're not. Is it not legal for you to offer an opinion? Can you not offer an opinion? <laughs> I wish someone had given me the list of things you could offer opinions on first. <laughs> <laughs> so you, 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 you're not able to really tell us, we think this is the thing that we should not. Well, I'm going through the deliberative process with the legislature. I tried. <laughs> Dude, I tried. Over there, and then back over to Ms. Hayes, and then Ms. Richards. So, Ma'am. Okay. question is, what, what has worked and not worked so well in terms of working with the emerging Latino majority, the uh, greater numbers of Latino students entering your institutions? Well, I mean, it's w one of the things that we think is one of our most important focuses uh, on, on making Texas A&M look like the rest of Texas. I mean, all you have to do is spend just a little bit of time, as I have over the years, and I know Cisco has too. Uh, with Steve Murdoch and look at the future of what Texas is about. And if you're going to be a great and powerful, you know, university system in Texas yep. 20 years from now, you better pay a heck of a lot of attention to that. Just as if, in, I mean, we really have two choices here. We, we have a huge advantage in this state, much of it because of that community, in that we're going to have more 18 to 21 year olds than any state in the nation. Now, the only place that even competes with us is Provo, Utah, and that's good Mormon families, eight kids per family on average. 
And so we have what businesses want. We have the workforce. The, the population is declining yeah. in virtually every other state. Now, if, they, if we have this huge, large population of 18 to 21 year olds and they are uneducated, then we get to be Mississippi in, you know, made over again. That's just a fact. I mean, you cannot recover from that. If we become the largest, uh, you know, stay with the largest group of young people in our workforce and they are well educated and there are tons of college graduates yeah. and things like that, we simply smoke every other state in the union. Bigger than oil, bigger right. than gas, bigger than cattle, cotton, all of that kind of stuff. Right. It is the future of what the state is. So about. we have a choice, but and of course we need the, we need the resources though to actually live up to our aspirations yeah, on yeah. that. To right? ignore we, that community yeah. is is the state's peril. Yeah, we have, we have well, a choice. Well, you know, over fifty percent of you know students in our K through twelve school systems right now are Hispanic, and um, you know, fortunately across the system. About 48% of our students in higher ed at University of Texas are Hispanic. But I want to go back to you know, how important it is to make certain that our students are college ready. And it goes back to how important it is for our universities, both Texas A&M and UT, to educate the very best teachers in America. Yep. To be actually teaching our students. We're very proud of what you teach has done but we really have to populate the highest caliber of graduates yep. to teach our students. If we can make our students college ready, and if we can innovate on how to make our large gateway courses yeah. uh, you know, far more interactive and, and really enhance student success, then we will yeah. uh, basically be leading the way on how to educate a diverse yeah. student body in America, and I do believe Texas A&M and UT will be the leaders on that front. But we can't, we can't break this down into silos. We are all on one team from pre-K through well, 12 well, and 16. To, to that point, Chancellor, on the college readiness question, there's the theory after the vote on House Bill 5 occurred two days ago that what the House did was effectively lower graduation standards. And there's a concern in some quarters that this will result in a need for remediation, really, in the pipeline now. That what the House did was essentially say, we're going to make it easier for kids to graduate. We're going to make the curriculum less rigorous. But ultimately, the problem's now going to be on you all to, uh, well, to, to inherit this. You sure better have some good, knowledgeable high school counselors, because if you don't take algebra and you don't take those things, his flagship will not take those kids. Our <laughs> flagship will not take those kids. Just because that happened does not mean that all of a sudden we say, Oh, you don't have to have all of these courses. Right. You all lowered your standards, but we're not going to lower our standards. We will not. Right. Lower we need to have students who are college ready who will have a high chance of graduation with their baccalaureate degree. If you just take a look at student debt, it's exceeding you know, credit card debt, right. debt. It's very fast. And growth. if you take a look at the students, you know, there's about a 20% default rate. And of those who default, 80% of those students do not graduate. Yeah. And you know, we would be doing a disservice if we admitted students who aren't college ready, don't get a baccalaureate degree, and default them. And then ultimately end up in debt. Ma'am. Perfect segue to my question, and back to the issue of both universities putting out so many teachers. Given, and I think you're one of the genius of the state for a long time, is any kid from any small town with no family support can go to UT or A&M and get a high quality education if they were smart enough and motivated. Given the great shift from loan, from grant funding to loan funding over 40 years, and now cuts to public education in the last few years, 
how much debt does a student who goes to one of your universities without any family support at all graduate with? Do you, uh, does that uh, afford them the ability to take right. a job as a teacher when we've got starting salaries in the 30,000? You must track debt average well, debt. Well, the average debt, the average debt is about 27,000. I mean, on average. If you go to become a physician, you know, the average debt rises to 120,000. And, uh, of course, you pay it back faster as a physician than a teacher, probably. Well, well you do, but $120,000 is a lot of debt. Yeah. And so that's why we have to be, make sure kids are college ready, succeed. Second, we have to innovate in how we're also educating professionals. And that's why we started the transformation in medical education, such that we can perhaps, you know, without compromising excellence, lower the time to an MD degree from eight years down to seven or down to six. Uh, but, but we have to really do our part in also lowering student debt. We can do that through innovation. We can do that through work-study programs. We can do that you know, for advocacy of Texas grants and other, other grants that students can get. But you know, this is a, we, we think about this every day yeah. about how we can lower the financial burden on our students. And in fact, uh, getting more kids out in four years as opposed to six or longer is a big contributor to keeping them out of... It, it, th right. That is a big problem. And you all are both a little, a little above 50% graduation rate by the last coordinating board numbers yeah. I saw in four years, but you have aspirations to raise that. Yeah, but I mean, when you have counselors telling the kids, hey, be easy on yourself, take, take 12 hours, don't stretch it and stuff yeah. like that, that, that is a real change from certainly 20 or 30 years ago. When the default was four when, years, right? Yeah. You know, get out in four years, because right. my dad said, you know, you get to pay after four years, and so. Yeah, you had was, a motivation to get out. That was not possible, but it, it's not just the fact that it runs up a bunch of debt, it's that every time somebody takes five years or six years to get through college because they want to take 12 hours instead of 15 or 18, or whatever it is, there is another kid somewhere in Hidalgo County that can't get in because that person's taking up their space. Right, I mean, we, limited we have to, And that's what his dashboard and our Empower You is all about, is to find those things, measure those things, and find ways to, to improve that and, and stop it from happening. It is not, you, you can't just go at your leisure and go yeah. through unless you have extenuating circumstances, like, a, a, you know, a single mom having to work and right. things like that. We understand that, but- That's the exception. But, but too many kids are- Okay. We're taking to last question right there, ma'am. So, in both of your, your could you stand, Ms. Richards? I'm sorry. What progress is being made to identify another peer one institution? In both of your systems, what progress is being made to identify another tier one institution? Okay, so, uh, very proud of the legislation uh, that Senator Zephyr was involved in creating uh, the legislation to define emerging research universities. We're blessed at the University of Texas system that we have four emerging research universities, UT Arlington, UT Dallas, UT San Antonio, and UT El Paso. Each one of them are making great progress um, you know, in, in, in their mission of education and research. Let's take a look at UT Dallas, for example. So UT Dallas, uh, over the past four years, uh, has nearly you know, doubled uh, their research expenditures. Their four-year graduation rate right now is 51%. And they uh, expect that over the next four years, it'll be at 57%. Uh, they are transforming their campus. 
And so when you take a look at UT Dallas, I know that John Sharp is looking at UT Dallas in his rearview mirror. But if, if UT Dallas continues in that trajectory, you know, John Sharp may see UT Dallas in his windshield. So, you know, we are, all of us are in, in a very good way, being extremely competitive in a healthy way. But the fact that this legislation has allowed us to proceed and support yeah. emerging research universities, and the fact that John Sharp and I uh, were competitive, but in a healthy way. Right. And the fact that we are competitive, that allows us to innovate, it allows us to learn from each other, it allows us to develop dashboards, it allows the public to see how we're doing, and this is good for Texas. This is the type of competition that we love to have because it's healthy and it's focused on supporting our students. And that's why I love working with John Sharp, and, it, and it's a camaraderie, it's a friendship, and it's healthy competition that puts a smile on my face every day. The tier one are, are, stuff. Are yeah. you offering UT Dallas? <laughs> <laughs> I will take it. Will that. you take it? Is that right? <laughs> right, right. I, well, research is a big key to that. And, and the, the, the one of ours that, that probably gets into the research mode as much or more than any is, is corpus, particularly if the FAA changes start hitting corpus and federal money starts getting there. And so, yep. We're trying to find the money to create for those institutions outside of A&M and Prairie View yep. the same kind of research initiative in order to do that. Ours are much smaller, much younger than, than, than what UT Dallas is, which is a really great institution. Uh, but we're, we, we, research is where we've got to really kick our game up with, within those folks. Okay. That research now re resides in Kingsville and Corpus for the most part. I'd like to just uh, make one closing remark in yeah. regards to, to friendships and healthy competition. Uh, with John Sharp uh, and I at the helm right now, it is wonderful to be able to explore areas of collaboration. And uh, in the area of making cancer history, MD Anderson and Texas A&M College Station are working very closely together in developing targeted therapies yep. uh, to eliminate cancer. Uh, you know, this, this you know, remarkable a new center for vaccine development at Texas A&M, uh, where GSK or Glasgow uh, came in. That also has a big part for University of Texas. You know, this is our future. Our future is uh, to compete in a healthy way, yeah. but to collaborate for the benefit of our students and our patients. Just fix the yeah, football so, thing, then everything will be great. Yeah, yeah. So, for, yeah. so two days ago, we did the same thing. I wore a maroon tie, he wore a tie like this, and he said, can you kind of be more neutral? So I did. And look what he did. I know. <laughs> well, you're, you're, you're going to laugh because, you know, after the last uh, interview that I had with you in, in your studio, uh, John Sharp calls me within five minutes. He goes, you were wearing a maroon tie. <laughs> it's like a hostage video, right? You're sending a signal, actually. Isn't that what it is? Excellent. All right. Well, it was fun to have these guys here. We appreciate their seriousness and your participation. Thank you very much. All right. I hope you enjoyed that. I did, too. Oh, yeah. The Texas Tribune's Trib Live event series is made possible through the generous support of AT&T, BP, Christus Health, and Raise Your Hand Texas.